You're listening to Flux Pod. My name is Matthew Perpetua. This episode features John Norris, a music journalism legend that is best known for being with MTV News uh, as a writer, as a producer, as a uh, on-air talent for about 20 years, close to 20 years. And uh, he'll talk a bit about his experiences with that and the trajectory of MTV News over that time. And uh, we're going to talk about a bunch of things. We're going to talk about uh, Britney Spears, uh, the new documentary about Britney Spears, and uh, John's own experiences uh, interviewing and covering Britney Spears at MTV. Uh, we get into, uh, let's see, we get into 6 9 and the new 6 9 documentary, uh, and John's kind of complicated feelings about 6 9 and you know his interest in kind of provocative talents and... Uh, John also makes a. I mean, I'm spoiling something he's not going to say, but he gets. He makes a really good comparison of six nine to sort of club kids that he would see at Limelight back in the day. Uh, you might know that whole milieu from the movie Party Monster. Uh, we talk about Marilyn Manson and Michael Jackson and his experiences with both of those guys. Uh, we get into ageism in, in music writing and uh, media in general. It's We're going to go to a lot of places. John is a very candid guy. This is going to be a fun one, I think. Uh, John really speaks his mind, and I think he gets a lot of interesting ideas out there. If you like this episode, you want to hear the rest, you know, it's all in the uh, feeds on, on all the major platforms. Wednesday episodes are free. The Saturday episodes for Patreon subscribers. And you can uh, sign up for that at uh, patreon.com slash fluxblog. $5 a month gets you four to five extra episodes per month. And uh, yeah, let's uh, also, you know, if you like the show, please tell people about it. This is a new thing. It is independent. Uh, Every bit of word of mouth is a big favor to me. So I really appreciate it. So let's get on to it. This is John Norris. Uh, John Norris, tell me who you are and what you do. Hey, Matthew. Um, well, I am a, uh, a music writer, a freelance writer at the moment, contributing currently at GQ, at Billboard. Uh, that's on hold a little bit for the last few months, but I've been contributing at Billboard for the last four years, GQ for, for a few months. And um, as well as the Recording Academy, I do some writing for them and from time to time for V-Man. In the past, as some people may or may not know, I worked uh, at MTV for many years as a writer and correspondent and anchor eventually. Uh, I then went on to start, um, did a music startup with a friend, a music discovery startup. I worked at Fuse TV for a couple years as a supervising producer and um, yeah, and then as a freelancer, besides the ones I already mentioned, I've written for Vice and Spin and Refinery29 and Entertainment Weekly and I guess lots of, lots of other places. The, the whole gamut. Yeah, the whole gamut, basically, yeah. So, oh God, so that really opens a lot of doors, but I'm kind of yeah. curious, like, what was your starting point? Like, how did you... Because I think you started at MTV like relatively young, right? Yeah, I was I was actually in college still. I had an in- internship uh, 
as and my I came in as a sort of a PA writer uh, in production, working on the top twenty countdown with first Mark Goodman and then Adam Curry, uh, and then I became a writer in the news department. Sort of, a, I was really the the junior writer there, and that was right when they soon soon after that they brought in Kurt Loder, um, and. I was there as a writer for about a year and a half before they realized they needed someone to be on air when Kurt was away and they didn't have anyone. Cause you know, we're talking like late eighties really, I began, I started on camera in 1990. Um, but I just, it was really a case of being in the right place at the right time. And I had had experience like as a kid actor, which is we don't we don't need to go back that far, but um, I so I was I was comfortable like being on camera and I was also comfortable writing, well writing news at the time, uh, and you know but Kurt came in with you know quite a lot of bona fides at that point you know so um, it was a little intimidating working f- kind of for him at the time but. Uh, when they needed someone to be a fill-in on camera, dude, I was just, I was there and they tried me out and they were like, wow, you're pretty good at this. And so I just, that, that's kind of, we kind of went from there. And you were there through about 2008. So you kind of were there for like like a, about two decades yeah, of MTV News. 18 years, yeah. I The very end of 2008 is when I was... Uh, uh, let's, how should we put this? I was shown the door, Matt. Uh, I, but you know, it went not for cause or anything, you know, n- notorious or nefarious. I, it was a big layoff. Um, I don't know if you remember this, but it was a, like, they laid, laid off like hundreds of people that day. It was, a- yeah. I mean, it's like, that's basically the story of like 2008, 2009. Yeah. yeah. Like incredibly rough time. I was laid off in that time. I was laid off. I was yeah. on public radio at the time. Oh, okay. Uh, um, yeah, my very last day was actually December 30th of, of 2008. Um, six months later, they had me back um, for three or four days in a row uh, to talk about Michael Jackson because he had just passed away. And um, I had, you know, spent time, not a lot of time, but as much as anyone at MTV had spent on the on-camera side, had spent with Michael. Um, and so, you know, I had a little bit of a perspective I guess, as much as anyone could have on, on one of the most famously secretive people in our, in our history, in our memory. Right. So in, so, okay. So you, you're there for nearly 20 years or, or thereabouts. Like what was the evolution of the news division there? Like, wh- cause you come in like right when it's starting. Yeah. Like, like what were, what was, I guess the, the trajectory of MTV news? Well, I think the hiring of Kurt was a shot across the bow to a lot of people in uh, music media, pop culture media, that MTV wanted to, MTV News wanted to get serious about what they were doing. And no longer it was going to be the VJs just reading out sort of tour dates and, and, and things like that. I guess to give people a little bit of context, Kurt Loder had been a, a very established right. music writer. He was at Rolling Stone and had some books, uh, other publications. But yeah, yeah, he was he was like a, a top shelf music critic at the time, right. music journalist. Exactly. And um, so, but apart from Kurt, it was really a, a sort of a a, a patchwork um, of 
some young writers like myself, two or three young writers, um, uh, a more ex- somewhat more experienced man- uh, editor, news editor at the time, and then um, you know a, a producer, the supervising producer came in was had a CNN background actually back then, and um, but yeah, I think it was I, that was when they wanted to try and really make the news division into a news division and um, and make a real distinction between VJs and news correspondents and anchors. And, you know, even to this day, I get a lot of people who like will recognize me and say, oh, you were the MTV VJ. And I don't really stand on ceremony and correct them. But I mean, there was a time when MTV News was really, it was really important to them to make that distinction, you know. Um, And then to answer your question, the way it evolved through the 90s was as well, I, I guess there was a few evolutions happening. The channel was evolving slowly um, with the real world and remote control and all that into a channel that was not just about music videos, as you know, as every as most people probably know. And this is my entire uh, <laughs> early adolescence through teenage years is the nineties. Yeah, there you go. And and then and then and then uh, news began to take on more than just music and pop culture itself. And that really began with, I guess, choose or lose and our involvement in the, in the elections. And the 92 election was really the one where they kind of tried to plant a flag. That was famously when Tabitha Soren asked Bill Clinton about whether boxers are briefs. Um, and uh, a wildly crazy thing to do at the time, which now seems incredibly tame. Right, right. I mean, especially given the way the Clinton presidency played out and all that. Um, you know, I, I um, and then you know, and then toward the later latter part of the decade, we went just beyond choose or lose, and we were doing all sorts of sort of pro-social coverage campaigns and and coverage, and I I was involved in in docs and series that had every, to do with everything from race relations to gun control uh, to same-sex marriage. So that was a little later, same-sex marriage. But we um, we even got into endorsing legislation. I went down to, in the early 2000s, I went down to D.C. and we had a big old press conference with MTV, making a big deal out of MTV News signing on to ex- the expansion of hate crimes legislation on the federal level to include uh, sexual orientation in the definition of a hate crime. And so I was really proud and happy to be a part of all that. Um, you know, things that stick out in my mind are like we we were we were the first, or I, as far as I know, we were the first, uh, one of the first outlets to be on the ground in Cambridge, Mass., when the first same-sex marriage licenses were handed out back in the early 2000s, and we were there at midnight when that people were lined up outside, that was just like, you know, lump in the throat time for me. And uh, I went to Cuba back in 2005. Uh, I thought, I mean, I never thought I would get to go to Cuba in my life, but we went with, of all bands, Audio Slave. Um, we went- that checks out. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, I mean. Morello's great. Morello's is such a smart guy. And he, you know, so he brought like a perspective to that. And so it was like a cultural exchange thing. And we went down there for like three, we were in Havana for like three or four days. Anyway, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, I don't, I need to go through all the, all the, all the stuff we did, but 
the but the MTV News Department definitely um, evolved over all that time. And then, then when TRL came along, and you know, boy bands and girl pop and all that sort of came to like really shove a lot of everything else aside, at least on the music level of the channel. Um, we had, you know, news had a presence on TRL too. And I was, I was like the TRL news guy for the first, probably, I guess, three or four years of TRL. And then either they got tired of me on that show or I got tired of them. And I started to do less of that. And Sujin Pak and, and others started doing the TRL news a little bit more. But I mean, you know, being on that show, I, I, I will, I will say that it was definitely a high profile gig to have too, you know, cause you know, we, de- we delivered the news about Aaliyah's death and left eyes death and Columbine. And I was the bit, the running joke was when the new, when news showed up on TRL, that's when things got dark. Bad vibes, bad vibes. The prime, the prime directive at TRL, of course, was to keep everything upbeat and, you know, you know, like, you, they would cheer. <laughs> so here comes gloomy John Norris exactly, to you know? completely ruin our afternoon. How, yeah, exactly. How's he going to like harsh, harsh our, our vibe today? You know, but um, uh, you know that that stuff was important too. And then I don't know. And then of course the VMA. It, it, I find it interesting that they felt uh, that they still felt strongly to have the news be part of that uh, that sh- that show. Because it seems like you could just as easily have been like, no, this is a non-news time. This is for the kids. Yeah. You know? I don't know. I guess they, I, I can't speak to why they wanted to, but I think they felt like there were stories that <clears throat> could only really be delivered in a, in its, in a dedicated news segment because they weren't always, they weren't always dark, but you know, sometimes they were a little heavier than the really um, frothy and upbeat uh, atmosphere that they wanted to really dominate that show, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So as the, the, the aughts move along, that's really where like, I no longer really have a lot of access to MTV. Right. Uh, so like what, what are the shifts there? Cause I mean, that's what, that's the kind of era where I would basically check in. I would see the VMAs, annually that would be like my main check-in with mtv i guess that's that's probably pretty common now yeah i think for a lot of people i mean you know there's only a few times a year that they really wholeheartedly embrace music again and and then the vmas are one of them although even uh, to be honest even the vmas and i watch them every year i even went back and went i attended the vmas in um i guess it was 24 13 or 14 i don't remember i think it's 2013 when they were at Barclays, the first time they were at Barclays. And, um, and it was, it was, was that the famous year with Miley Cyrus and Robin Thicke? Yeah. yeah, Gaga did applause and Miley and Robin Thicke. And, uh, they did a long Justin, Justin Timberlake, like tribute. Cause he won the video Vanguard and NSYNC brief, briefly reunited for a moment, you know? Um, but that was a good one. I think that's one of the the better late period, uh, VMAs. Yeah, it was fun. But I mean, VMAs were always an absolute blast for me. I mean, I, I was from 1990 or 91, whenever I did my first VMAs, I don't, I think it was, ni- I think it was 91. I, I was um, the, always with the red carpet guy, you know, no matter, it didn't matter 
like how good I, they thought I was. I mean, honestly, it was sort of like I kind of I kind of got that gig and it stuck with me because I was uh, I just I don't know. I'm 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 like a nerd and I'm obsessive. I have such OCD about preparation, and so like I I would get on a red carpet like literally prepared to talk to. F- 40 people because you never know who's going to come up and not just talk to them about what they're wearing. And that just, cause it's not my, my, that's not. Who I am. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, uh, and so I just got stuck there. There was only one year that Kurt couldn't do it because he was ill or not, not available that year. One year that I got promoted to what they call home base, which was the main, you know, stage in the pre-show where he and his co-anchor in, originally was Tabitha for many years. And then I think Sujin became kind of his, his default co-anchor, but only one year that I really got to do the, the home base sort of gig. Um, but otherwise I was always on the, I was always on the red carpet and I, you know, I like to bitch about that, but I like to bitch about a lot of things. You know, I <laughs> like to bitch about on New Year's Eve. I would always have to be outside, you know, like I, you know, I, um, you know, on the millennial millennium New Year's Eve, uh, my boyfriend was inside in the studio and I didn't even get to be with him on, at midnight on, on, you know, cause I had to be out in the, I think it was that year was particularly cold, like 10 degrees or something. Um, and, but it was, it's fine. You know, I like to bitch about things, but it was a, it was an amazing- I guess the upside of all that is that you can go to any party through the rest of your life. And if, if you have a boring conversation, you can at least bring in one of the celebrity encounters that you've had that will connect with whoever it might be. I suppose, you know, I'm, but like, I, you know, I, like I said to you in the email or in the, in our DMS the other day. And like, I, I always, I want to say to so many people that, well, strangers that I encounter that want to talk about the past or, or anybody, I'm really like, I mean, this is fun talking to you about it, but like, I'm really like, uh, so not in the 12 years now, since I left, it's been, it's been really hard to get away from the people wanting me to talk about that. And this is, you know, I, I'm not, look, I'm not going to win any sympathy from anyone who's listening to this going, oh, wow, he had a rough 18 years, you know, <laughs> as an on-camera, you know, fucking whatever, you know, I don't want to use the word not celebrity, but as a, as a, as a public figure on MTV, what a, what a tough time, you know, but it is, it is, um, it is not, it's, it's a blessing and a curse in that, people want to always drag you back to that. And like, I don't think you want to spend the, we, we want to spend the next half hour me bitching about um, yeah. age, ageism in music media, but I have a whole stump speech about that, Matt, for another time. Uh, yeah. We, or we, we can even cycle to that at some other point yeah, in the conversation. Yeah. Oh yeah, I know. I, I'm, I'm happy to do that. So let me go and just listen. All you people look at me like I'm a little girl. Well, did you ever think it'd be okay for me to step into this world? Always oh, a little girl, don't step into the club. Well, I'm just trying to find out why, cause dancing's what I love. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm curious, um, like, towards the end of your tenure, because I think it's kind of bridging into one of the things we want to talk about was 
uh, the Britney Spears documentary that came out and people kind of revisiting the and, re- and understanding now, like, oh, we the, we collectively the, as media, as humanity at large, we were horrifically bad to Britney Spears and other similar celebrities sure. in the aughts. And I'm just curious, like, what was your experience uh, with all of that being at MTV through most of that decade? Well, back in 1999, I think it was, I was the first MTV, uh, I was going to say talent, but anyone at MTV to interview Brittany. And it was done at her, the house she grew up in, in Kentwood, Louisiana, surrounded by her doll collection um, in her bedroom. And I, you know, I, it's, it's funny to say that because I, when I say that, I just say that to you matter of factly, but when you use words like that, now in 2021, I, there will be, there will hundred percent be people who listen to me say that sentence and go, that sounds a little creepy, John. Um, and, 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 you know, it's like things that, man, I can talk so much about this stuff, but I, things that I wouldn't think of, have a second thought about in 1999. I don't know. Some people who are inclined to see things as creepy, might see as creepy. Any, in any case, what I want to say about this and the revisiting of Brittany, I think what the Times show did, uh, the FX Times show did, was really important. And uh, it's important part, part, partly because I think especially younger people may not be aware of how things were back then. And to be totally honest with you, Matt, when I watched that show, I was like, when they did the montage of like a really shitty, creepy questions being asked of her, things about her virginity, things about her breasts, for fuck's sake. I mean, I'm sorry, can I curse? I don't know. If- oh, yeah, go ahead. I mean, like, I- independent media, <laughs> the benefits of independent media. I mean, I, I was actually, I was actually sort of like taken aback myself because my interactions with her, and I probably interviewed her four times or five times between 99 and 2008. And look, I mean, there've been a lot of think pieces written in the last couple of weeks about how we're all collectively at fault for that. And I understand that. And culturally, I think we were because it was a time when, look, it was a time when Howard Stern and his and, and nothing against Howard. I mean, there's many things I love about Howard, but but Howard Stern was arguably in his heyday that in that era, and or you know uh, Fred Durst, the, the most notorious version of him for sure. Yeah, or Fred Durst was doing it all for the nookie, you know. And we were at a time. I mean, look, or or Eminem was. You could argue slut shaming. Not you could argue was straight up slut. Certainly was. Yeah. yeah girls, women. And um, so, but my interaction, all I want to say is my interaction. I'm not, I tweeted this the other day because someone else had a, had linked to their, their story about how we were all at fault. And I've read like three or four pieces, basically the thesis being we've all, we're all to blame for this, the way Janet was treated with the Super Bowl or the way Brittany was treated, et cetera. And look, I all I know is that, you know, if if the folks behind 
Um, the Britney show, uh, Liz Day, I think from the times and, and, uh, Samantha Stark, the director, I don't even know if they considered using any clips from any interviews I did with Britney, but I can tell you that if they did, they wouldn't have found anything to support the narrative that she was universally treated shitty in a shitty way because I, it wasn't it. I, not in the, and look, I don't, I don't need to plead my case here, but like not in a million years would I think to ask this woman, this young woman about any of those things, or for, even for that matter, I mean, I do, do you feel like MTV collectively was more sympathetic to Brittany if just because, I mean, well, for a lot of reasons, but it's also because your fortunes were so tied together. And she was, you, know, you had a, you had a, you had a real relationship with her on an artistic level. Yes, I think that, but I also think that, and look, you can, I, I, someone's going to hear this and they could put together in a five, a half hour, a montage of behavior on MTV from the say 90 through the time I was there, 90 through 2008 of one toxic remark after another by some dude on the channel. And I could tell you some that were directed at me in a, in a implicit or explicitly homophobic way. But like, look, I'm not saying our, our, um, our slate, our, our record is so clean in that respect, but I don't think we ever had people at the channel and it may, it may be well, like what you're saying that we were, we were in bed with the labels and the, and the, and the artists and managers to the point where we couldn't be, those shitty tabloid interviewers who were asking those things of her. But I, well, I, I think there's, there's that too, but there's also just like the thing where I think maybe more of you, like you yourself and other people you're working with, like saw Brittany as a, a valuable figure, as opposed to, you know, the extreme example of being like, uh, Oh, what's the name of the Perez Hilton? Just like not considering her that human at all. Well, well, yeah, I mean, Perez Hilton, that was his shtick, right? Was to be nasty and to be, and to be, he would say, be honest. He would probably call it being honest. I would call it being, you know, trolling and provoke. We didn't, we didn't even really use the word troll back then, did we? But I mean, but I mean, Perez was a prototype for a troll, in my opinion. But, you know, I, I just don't think we really employed many people who were, who were inclined to be nasty and certainly not slut shaming. That's just not, that's just not the kind of people we had there. And, you know, it's, it, look, I don't, I'm really proud to have been there. And when I say that there's a lot of things to knock about MTV for over those years, I was there, there really are. And we could talk about that too, but it was a culture, a company and a culture that was generally quite positive and not, not what I would call toxic. And um, a lot of it, I mean, be honest, you know, uh, I don't talk about her a lot, but Judy McGrath is an amazing woman. And um, she, for a large part of MTV's history was oversaw that channel and her, and her, her personality and her, her, her wisdom and her, her just, I think, reflexive empathy, you know, the, the fish might rot from the head, but sometimes the fish is really healthy 
from the head, if you know what I mean. And um, so I recently found an, uh, an, an interview with Judy McGrath that was in Spin around 1989, where the, the whole interview with her was kind of premised on, well, Judy, what are you doing to make MTV less sexist? Are you, like, are you going to stop showing like these spring break things or, you know? So, yeah, this is like a very much a thing that she was doing and it, I, I would imagine through the whole time she was there which is uh, i think about as long as you were at least right? yeah oh longer she was there she hired me i mean she brought me in because i was a uh, she had known me how did she know me? Uh, she knew of me through because i had had another internship at a radio station and um the guy gm from that station went over to mtv told judy about me and call, that's when she called. But this is like how long ago that was. This is the late 80s to, for my internship. So like, I mean, I interviewed with Judy McGrath to get an internship. I, I mean, like, I mean, which to me is like mind blowing considering the what she ascended to. Um, yeah, she's on the board of Amazon now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and Van Toffler too. Van's a great, great guy. And I, um, you know, look, I, of course, as far as, if you want to talk about spring break and singled out and a lot of shit, like, yeah, I mean, I relate a lot to what you're saying because of my experience with Buzzfeed through, like I said, I was there for about seven years and I think it's, it's a very similar because what you're saying before, but like when MTV news was beginning is kind of around the time is very similar to when I came in on, uh, on Buzzfeed where the thing was starting to layer in like a serious news organization they had hired Ben Smith. You know, sure. so it's and and then you know, but it's like you know, you hire a few like big splashy names, and then everybody else is kind of like a scrappy go getter in yeah. some level. And then also the thing where it's like, you know, I, I think that the BuzzFeed that I worked for, I think that was full of lots of really good people, and I think was generally trying to do good things. But you would always have to be embarrassed by like the random people who were doing something super crass, and yeah. you know. And when you look at the way people deal with, you know, these huge broadcast entities, you know, it's like people, it's very hard to get a full picture in your head of what it is and understanding that it's not all coming from the same people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not to digress too much from the Britney thing, because I want to, I had a couple other things I wanted to say about Britney, but, you know, when that when the show came out a couple of weeks ago and the conversation all began everywhere, you know, it, it, it sort of segued into a conversation about Janet once again, and what happened with Justin and her at the Super Bowl. And, um, th- there was a little, there's a little clip from an interview I did with Justin that was maybe a year or two after the Super Bowl incident that circulated on Twitter for a day or two. um, where he didn't, he didn't really, it, it was no mea culpa by any means. And, but, and I don't know, he, he, I, I, he came off as more like he was dismissing it. And people have asked me like, what, you know, didn't you feel at the time, like he had really thrown her under the bus? And my honest answer to that is I was so angry at the, the country's reaction and the CBS's reaction and MTV, you know, who had produced that that halftime show, um, the I I was I I was more pissed off about. I felt like 
I mean, look, I, to me, you talking to somebody, I mean, to me, I'm like, a breast is a breast. Get the fuck over it. Like, I mean, that that's my reaction. And I mean, people can say to me, John, but it's the Super Bowl. It's the NFL. Of course, it's family entertainment. Of course, it's, you know, they're going to be, it's going to be a big issue. To me, it's not. I always, I, I, I'm just somebody who sees the world the way I think it ought to be. And I'm, I'm hard pressed to see the, see the world as it really is. And some would argue that's why I'm gainfully unemployed, Matt. But, um, <laughs> but, but uh, uh, you know, I, I mean, I just, so I was more pissed off about that. And Justin's role in it, I guess at the time I felt like, yeah, he could have done better, but um, I feel like it there is something where I do feel it was on all of us. If Janet was shamed as she was, as she, in a, in a just a despicable way, um, and I, she's that's another person that I had three or four lovely times with. I spent four days on the road with her in the UK once, and she couldn't have been, she could not have been sweeter. Um, and. I, I, so, I mean, yes, I mean, but at the same time, this, that, that, the Justin, you know, apology that he jotted down on notes the other day, it's like, okay, dude, I mean, thanks. But like, I don't think someone, I, what, what year was that? That was like uh, 2002, the uh, Janet Jackson. I, it was thing. I thought it was late. Like, near, like nearly 20 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, three or I thought it was three or four, but maybe maybe it was two. Maybe it's yeah, I think so. That sounds right. Um, you know, um, I don't know what we have, what I was going to say. Oh, regarding Brittany, one other point I want to make regarding Brittany is that one thing that colored the release, the rollout of that documentary a couple weeks ago. In all the interviews that I saw, Samantha, the director, and Liz, who is really the, I think, creator of the show, um, a, a narrative that they were spinning a lot in interviews they were doing about the show was that they felt that what they were bringing to the show was a new, and I hate to use this word because God knows it's played, a more woke kind of millennial perspective on Britney and what had happened to her, which is something that they could bring to it as a function of their age. And here I go back to ageism, Matt, but I, 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 and I hate to do that, but here's what grinds my gears, dude, is that the idea that people of a certain age, my age, my age range are more inclined to be shitty or, misogynist or, or, or sexist or now crass. Yes. If you, I'll give you crass, I can be crass. And, but, but like to me, I make a distinction between liking crass humor or speaking in a kind of a crass way to being just cruel or misogynistic or nasty or I do. Um, anyway, I, that, that, that narrative, that positioning of the of the Britney doc as being here, fellow millennials, here's in Gen Zers, here's how Britney, our icon, this is how shitty she was treated by these old white dudes, you know. And here's an here's an old white dude who didn't treat her that way. That's all I'm saying. 
you know? So yeah. don't, I mean, I, I'm not trying to make excuse for any of those creeps who would, who did some of that to her, but you know, I, I, I don't know. Um, it's reductive is what you're saying. It's, yeah. it's, it's not, it's, it's, it's like there's, you can see the rhetorical value in being like, everything was like this, but you know, it's interesting. Cause we're in this time, right. Where we're seeing this spate of docs, uh, or if you want to call them documentaries, because I think they're, um, I think, a, I think a lot of them, whether it's, the R. Kelly one, or it's leaving Neverland, or it's the new Woody Allen one, or it's it's uh, Brittany or whatever. I, you know, these are not these are not frontline documentaries where someone's going in with a blank slate and saying, "Let's find out the truth." What they're doing in most cases is the creator is going in very much with a with an axe to grind and an opinion to a degree already formed. And I look in the case, right. Like we're, we're here to tell this story. Right. Is, like, I think they would, they would frame it as like, we want to tell this story, yeah. which is honest, but also, you know, you know, it kind of gives away the game a little. Yeah. I mean, it's a little bit of agitprop, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's like, I, it's interesting because in the case of the Britney one, because it was unique because the subject was not the villain. The subject was actually someone we were, who was being in a sense of the victim of this culture and of, and of, and of this treatment. Well, the early cult treatment in terms of the, her career. And then later on the conservatorship, one note about that, by the way, the conservatorship is that I'm really naming a lot of names here and I hope I, I'm, I'm, I'm probably, I don't know. I'm going to maybe get some people not being happy about this, but Joe Coscarelli at the times, um, you know, I, I don't know this for a fact, but I have it. I suspect that the whole idea of this Britney show very much began with him because the Britney story and her conservatorship has been one that Joe's been interested in for quite a long time. And I, one reason I know this is because there's a, there's a clip in the show. I don't know if you remember, but Joe says, he goes, I have a feeling that anyone who's talked to Brittany, because they were talking about the, the lack of access they had to her or anyone in her current inner circle, right? That they were, it was just like, you know, getting into Fort Knox. Um, uh, and Joe said, I, anyone who's talked to Brittany in the last 10 years, I feel pretty sure has done so under a lot of constraints under, you know, a lot of like, you know, you can't ask this, you can't do that. And, you know, very highly, uh, highly uh, restrictive conditions uh, on any interview. And when he said that, I felt seen because about four years ago, I interviewed Brittany for V Magazine and Soon after it published, I got a call from Joe, which was like, I don't, I mean, I like Joe and I, I mean, I like his work and I not only knew him through Twitter and stuff, but he called me up and, he, and, and the reason he was calling me is because he wanted to know what constraints had been put on my interview with Brittany. And um, I told him the truth, which was that we were, I was told going in that you can't ask about the conservatorship. She can't comment on it at all. Um, and uh, her publicist stayed on the line. It was, I, I, it was, it was that kind of phone call where it, that kind of interview where you just, I just, 
it's like, why did I fucking agree to do this? But I mean, I've only I've only had to do that a couple of times, and it's it's such an awkward and terrible feeling. Yeah, it, yeah, really. I mean, and look, he wasn't he wasn't overly uh, restrictive, but I mean, he wouldn't even let me talk about her new music, which was announced only like new record was announced, I think two or three months later. Um, so was this like around blackout, I guess, uh, this was, this was later than blackout. This was whatever the last, it was, uh, I think four years, but the one with womanizer maybe. Yeah. I think or later than that. I have to, God, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to draw a blank on which record it was. <laughs> well, so am I. Don't whatever, worry. <laughs> whatever, whatever the last one was. Um, and, um, which I don't think was that well received, but I, anyway, um, it was a very, it was, it was, you know, the main, the main reason we got access to her was because she wanted to talk about the reboot of her current Vegas residency. And, um, they really tried to keep me focused on that. Uh, and I, I just, you know, I mean, I didn't let them vet questions first cause I'm not that, that I have to draw a line at, but, you know, I think that, um, I don't know. I'm sure that the folks of the old gray lady don't look at John Norris as exactly the most, uh, you know, uh, hard ethics sort of journalism journalist. So I, so, uh, you know, I, 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 I suppose Joe probably thought that I was, I don't know, I was a patsy or something, but whatever. He can think what he wants. Do you feel like the the Britney, the Britney documentary uncovers anything that was new? Because my response to this was that it just, I mean, I've been reading about this stuff forever. So like it, it didn't even seem like a thing that for I felt like compelled to watch. And I think that, I think there's maybe something to be said about documentary and things being on television that a lot of these stories that, you know, have, have been known stories, but these documentaries come and it, people actually engage with it. I didn't feel like we, we learned a lot. I think it was a, I think it was a useful, well done doc laying out of everything that had happened to her. Um, and, and, but then once you get into the, the real story behind the current state of the conservatorship, there's only, they couldn't get beyond what's in the public record. You know, the fact that it now her dad and this, this uh, financial outlet sort of share, you know, the conservatorship status of, of, of they are the conservators. Um, you couldn't get much beyond that. I mean, the, I think the closest they got to her was Felicia, who was a longtime day-to-day manager and, or tour manager. And um, th- I think they acknowledge as much, you know, in the, in the thing, but I think they've, I mean, to me, it just felt like a, the, the TV version of a write around piece, right. That you would do in a magazine when you can't get access to someone and you just, well, we want to do this anyway, so we're going to do it. You know, I, I mean, um, I remember years ago, Rolling Stone couldn't get Justin Bieber. So they just did a Justin Bieber cover story anyway. And it was a complete write around. And I, I mean, I, I don't, um, I don't really feel like we learned a lot. I, I think that, you know, you certainly saw the passion of the, of the free Britney movement. Um, and, uh, and I, you know, and you feel for her, but when you're not able to hear from her directly, and then she did come out with a sort of a vague statement afterwards, right? Sometimes I wonder whether or not she's as, 
Um, I think she is. I think she is unhappy with the conservatorship. I, if I was to guess, I don't know that she's. A, she feels as aggrieved by the early part of the show and the her the tr- way she was treated. I don't. I something tells me that in retrospect, she doesn't dwell a lot on the fact that she was treated pretty shitty. You know what I mean? I wonder. I wonder if those feelings come out for her more when she sees how. Uh, contemporary pop stars are treated relative to how she was treated. Exactly. Exactly. Maybe I bet she looks at someone like Ariana and says, man, it must be nice. It must be nice to be able to like, not, I mean, can you imagine Ariana Grande being asked a question like about her breasts? For God's sake, she like, she would like, you know, just shut it down immediately yeah, she, for sure. If, if, if not, like, I, I, I think that's probably true of most every yeah. other uh, star in her same uh, level, right? Exactly. Or even like much lower, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and then you know there are other there are other docs. The you know, I haven't seen the Woody Allen thing, but as I understand it, the only the only part of Woody's side of any story you hear is what they excerpt from his audio book from last year or, or whatever. Um, and then as I told you in the DMs, I'm way, you know, I'm, I've been obsessed with um, the six, nine documentary for the last week or so. Uh, I, I watched the, so I watched the, the, the first three episodes of this, which is they have uh, available screeners, I guess. When does the, the it actually launch on TV? Uh, is the first episode aired? It aired on Sunday night. And um, then the, it's going to be the next two Sundays. It's only a three parter. So you've seen the whole. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, 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 oh my god! I, like, I had such a, a strong response to watching it that I didn't even anticipate, but it just kind of gave me like this very powerful, like kind of dark feeling. This is being in that Takeshi Six Nine zone for like three hours, uh, and the kind of being kind of bombarded with that energy is just it just kind of makes you feel a little sick and. It, it, and I don't think it even necessarily even had to do with specific things he was doing. It was just like this response to the energy that was being put forth. Boom, boom, uh. Yeah, yeah. I um, I've taken a lot. I've taken a fair amount of heat, both online and in real life, from people in the last five years for for being um, somewhat defensive about about him, about six nine, and I, I I don't. There's a lot to unpack there about why I would be defensive of about him in in any way, but um you know, he's hurt a lot of people in these, in these, uh, well, if we want to take it back to the sex crime, that was, I think, six years ago. He's hurt a lot of people in, in, in the name of boosting his own career. And, you know, he lives for, he lives for attention. Attention is his oxygen and not unlike the way it is for a certain ex-president of ours. You know, the, 
who in the documentary he yeah. talks about love. Yeah, I and it's like, and of course he does because like you, you, like you would recognize like yourself and the other yeah, person. Like yeah. it, it, it is like the, the, the. I think for I think that what you were just describing, but also like the way anything that they do is just to build fame and attention. Uh, I mean, he, I think one of the things that really bummed me out is just kind of seeing like how relatively uninterested he was in his own music and how just the music that he did was just a matter of this was the most expedient way to get attention. Like, like I remember him saying like, I don't really listen to rap. I mostly just listen to breaking Benjamin. Yeah, exactly. No, I think he was like, he was into like metalcore and, and emo, like not emo punk, but like, you know, punk sort of like of the early 2000s is a, is a little kid or early. Yeah. 2000, early 2000s probably. And he was born in 96. So whatever. Um, but uh, he was, he is more of a rocker at heart and he, you know, he fell in with hip hop producers and in, in, I mean, people who know six, nine story, they know, they know it inside and out. You know, he was a kid working at a bodega um, and uh, you know, a son of a Mexican mom and a Puerto Rican American dad. And uh Dad, his bird dad left at a very early age. His step, stepfather got killed when he was 13. And that was like his real father figure and, and mentor. And he kind of went into a t- tailspin after that. But he's always been about attention. You know, you, you, like you say, it wasn't really even about. I don't think he really even saw himself or maybe even today to this day as pr- first and foremost, a musician. He's a entertainer and an attention seeker and a, and a troll. And, um, and look, we, you know, we reward those figures more than we ever have, arguably. And, and, and I, I mean, I actually think that some of his stuff, some of his singles in 2018 and on the dummy boy record. Um, and then last year, a couple of his singles were out genuinely, I really liked. Um, but his early stuff is just like thrashing and, thrashing and flailing about and kind of doing this like punk hip hop combo thing, but which is like theoretically interesting, but I don't find it like musically successful. Yeah. 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 I mean, but he undeniably got attention and like, you know, what, what fascinates me about him is being in a, being in Bushwick and, and I don't, and I don't mean, you know, I don't mean, you know, hipster white boy now Bushwick. I mean, like you know, you know, black and brown. You know, and sort of like hood Bushwick. As a kid, he to to have the impulse to like, okay, nobody notices me. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start this clothing line, and I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make a bunch of sh- you know. Uh, hoodies and 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 sweatshirts and shorts and that say things like cunt and HIV and I and I, and I'm going to start getting photographed and and that's exactly what happened and all of a sudden he became this this sort of figure that was blogged about as somebody who was just this wild kid and then he went for the hair and you know funny thing about this documentary and the one on Hulu that aired in the fall is that they talked to a lot of the same people from his background, tattoo artist, this woman, Rebecca from the salon, hello, beautiful in Williamsburg, who did his famous rainbow hair. And 
the fact that this kid had this impulse to be sort of outrageous had in its own sort of street, like, uh, you know, kind of Mexican, you know, gutter straight boy way reminded me of like the kind of attention seeking that I would see in the nineties going out to limelight with the club kids where they would go out of their way to do like the most outrageous, offensive, uh, provocative things. And there were no, there were no limits to what they wouldn't do. You know, I'm, you know, they, that that's a really good connection. I think if, if people kind of need to be grounded in some kind of pop cultural reference, like the movie party monster, I'm making that. references to things that probably people, they could go see the movie party monster. And uh, yeah. yeah, it's super, super interesting. A really, really cool time. Yeah. Like, I don't know cool is necessarily the right word I want, fun. but you know, it's, it, it yeah, it was, a, it was a definitely a fun, colorful time last year for billboard. I interviewed, um, Peter Gation because he had a book out, his sort of memoir, and Peter had a has, has a wild, wild story, and especially in the '90s when Giuliani was going after him and, and trying, like, like uh, what's his name, Jean Valjean and in Les Mis, uh, Giuliani had this crusade to get after Peter Gation, but um, man, I'm I'm really going way off. I, I realize I'm digressing left and right here wildly, Matt, but. Um, but you know, the kids, the the club kids, kind of in their own, definitely more gay and trans way, had impulses that were not unlike Takashi's, like Six Nines, like uh, "Look at me, look at me" thing. That which he's still doing to this day. I mean, we did the 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 brand new video and the way he like waited outside a club in Atlanta the other day to to have a to stage a confrontation with Meek Mill. <clears throat> just for the purpose of having something like, you know, made him, that put him in this like me, sort of fake tough guy light. And it's like, I guess wh- going back to why I found myself defending him is that I, I, I don't even, I've never met the guy, but I sense in him somebody who has the capacity to be um, decent and, and, you know, I don't think anyone is just I, irredeemable. I guess that's that's what it is. You know, I, you know, um, I was I really liked XXX Tentacion, too, you know, and my queer friends would say, how he, how can you support that guy? He beat up a gay or a guy in jail who looked at him the wrong way and he thought was gay. How can you like and I guess my answer is that. Toxic behavior on the part of young people who've had young men, I should say, who've had sort of fucked up backgrounds. Part of me wants to think and hope that they can do better. And I think that they sometimes, some cases they try. It's not always easy, you know. XXX chained up a girl, his girlfriend to a refrigerator famously. I mean, it's like engaged in some really disgusting things, you know, but he also made super like viscerally exciting to, in my, to my ear music. And like, I I don't know why I'm. And a few beautiful songs too. I've always really liked the song Moonlight. And that one is, there was really gorgeous sound and it just has this really good melancholy feeling to it. Yeah. I don't know. Like Matt. And the other thing is about all this is that, 
God, I wish I could talk about this stuff without using the word cancel because it's so loaded. And some people like believe it's canceling is a thing and other people think it's the wrong word to use, you know, but. Uh, but, you know, just the, the, just the, 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 the general concept and culture as it is yeah, right now. Exactly. I just wish there was something. I wish there was more consistency to it. You know, when I see when I see six, nine blackballed and that's what it was. All right, because they they kind of took a lot of his stuff off. They they, they made his stuff on Spotify and Apple Music much harder to find. It wasn't being put in playlists anymore officially. Exactly, exactly. I mean, you can you can find his records on there, but they certainly weren't promoting it, and they knew damn well what they were doing. Um, You know, uh, you know. Likewise, uh, the iHeart hip hop stations, the Intercom. Uh, the, these these radio conglomerates, their hip hop stations weren't playing him. Uh, hip hop nation on Sirius XM, which I listen to all the time. Man, we could have a whole nother conversation about how I've evolved into more of a hip hop fan than anything else over the years, which is like a, a whole nother thing. But like, I, but you know, they they they've effectively, as far as I can tell, blackballed him, and it's happened. It's happened, and I just you know. If 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 Daniel Ack from Spotify or head head honchos at Apple Music, if they want to man up and say, yes, we have blackballed Takashi 69 and here's why. That's one thing. But to just do it in this sort of insidious way, and then and and you know, I don't I it's a he's been made an example of. And it, yeah, it feels it feels arbitrary too. It does. Because it's not like the, 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 there's not other people who are similar exactly. that, in different in, in other genres as well. There's plenty of people that are similar that we know about, and God knows how many there are that we don't know about. And look, we only know what we know, right, about people. But um, there are people who've been, you know, who've done time for weapons possession or aggravated assault or or attempted murder charges that are on Spotify and, and being, and, and being included in, in rap caviar, when their most listened to rap playlist or release radar, the hip hop version of release radar on Spotify. They're not, it's, it's specifically six, nine. And, you know, the funny thing about another thing about Takashi that I'll say is that you, you can't necessarily find a consensus about why people hate him as much as they do. Some people, and it's generally tends to be white people, they're be, they're 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 the re, the the line he crossed was the sex crime with the underage girl. And look, dude, that's indefensible. I mean he was 18, she was 13 years old. I don't care if she told them he was she was 19. That's there's nothing you can't say anything about it. On the other hand, he pleaded guilty to the to the offense and um, he did a time, he did a, 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 pro- a probation sentence for it and a community service, I believe. And he, I think he was, I think he was ordered to get a GED, which I'm not sure whether he ever did after that either. But in any case, for, for a lot of white critics of him, that's the issue. For plenty of other people, and believe me, there's plenty of people in hip hop who, who, it's absolutely 100% the fact that he cooperated with, with the feds and, and the word, let's face it, the word is snitched. That's, that's where, that was the, that was the line. That was the, that was the line that he can, he can never be forgiven for. Um, and I'll tell you what, that blackballing, 
um, on the part of the those streaming outlets that we were talking about, and on the part of the radio outlets, that didn't happen after the sex crime. That's that's been since he went to prison. So that's been since he snitched. So I I can only conclude that it was it's that that's made him, you know, a persona non grata at hip hop outlets because there's a lot of that. Let's face it, there's a lot of that audience that considers that inexcusable and there's no way that they would ever have anything to do with him again because of it. So I've been talking a lot about him. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. And also there's just kind of a natural bridge to talking about Marilyn Manson, who is kind of, you know, from a, from a different generation, a similar figure and has just recently after all these years, finally getting nailed for, a lot of yeah. like pretty severe domestic abuse, or I guess maybe like a relationship abuse, things like that. Um, and you know, pe- people, there's been rumblings about that for a while, but it seems to have boiled over and become more of a concrete thing in the very recent past. Right. Well, I guess really precipitated by Re- Evan Rachel Wood coming out. You know, she had talked about this abusive relationship in the past, but never named him. And um, more power to her. To, for feeling like she can be uh, honest and open about it, because I think only in only in being open about these things can 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 many of us. I mean, I I haven't gone through some any relationship like that. So, and I thankfully, but um, I think only in being open about it can can people really get to a even begin to get to a place of peace. And I don't I don't really I'm not I don't work with survivors, and I don't work with abuse victims. So I only know what I know uh, that I've read. Um, it's, it's interesting that, um, Rose, the, the, uh, not to be crossed Rose McGowan, um, has come out and said that she didn't experience that in her relationship with Manson, but that she a hundred percent does believe Evan and believes survivors and, 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 and she's not going, she has no reason to not believe it. Um, I can only tell you about my experiences with Manson from 15, 20 years ago, 20 years ago, really. Um, and they were almost, and there were probably four times one, once I was on the road with him, which here's, I mean, talk about being on the road at an entertaining for an entertaining tour. I was out with Manson and Hole on their joint tour in 97 or eight, I want to say that was. I guess it'd be 98 because they both had records out in 98. Yeah. God, you know, you're like an encyclopedia. Um, well, it's, I, I've done all those playlist surveys. Oh, right. so I have a generally a good idea of what years things right, right. are. Well, that was such a, that was such a fun time and also a weird time because um, Courtney was in a real sober place then. And, um, the when we hooked up with the tour, which I think was in San Jose, uh, the backstage situation was like uh, it was like two not I wouldn't say warring camps, although friction was already starting. I think you know Manson or Brian, as the, those close to him call him, and Courtney, they had this like frenemy kind of relationship, I think, but I think it was veering more toward the enemy side by the time we joined up with the tour. As best I could tell, they were barely speaking at that point. It was only like a week or two into the tour. Um, and and uh, 
Courtney was all about, you know, that was just, you know, herbal tea and like incense on her dressing room and their side of the backstage. Meanwhile, on the dark, the other other side was, let's just say, uh, a little darker and uh, things were being uh, indulged in a lot stronger than, you know, jasmine tea. Uh, and so, but Manson was always, I've interviewed, I interviewed him probably four times. And honestly, one of the most um, just reliably entertaining interview subjects you could ever talk to. Because the guy had just like a whip smart mind and was so funny and, but in like a dark way and he would be playfully, um, playfully not abusive, but, but he would, he liked to tease and stuff, you know, and he, you know, he would do that with me. Like I, okay. I'm going to tell you. So I, 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 you know, I, I used to be a little bit more, um, sartorially, uh, uh, adventurous and i and as as somebody once put together a montage like a, a a clip montage of all the outfits that i wore to the vmas for like 15 years and um there are some real winners there it's like looking at a yearbook like of 15 year yearbook and going what was i thinking you know <laughs> but um and also hairstyles which, dude, it's a good thing this isn't video because I, I, I really, I haven't cut it in over a year, and it's like I, I look, you could completely mop my head, mop the floor with my hair right now. I don't know if you know what a, a the dog breed known as a puli is. It's a Hungarian breed with, yeah. uh, but that's exactly what I look like right now. But so, but back then, anyway, I'm totally digressing with the Manson thing. I one of the nights we were on the tour. Uh, a, a, the color scheme of that tour was pink, especially on whole side. It was all pink. So I decided I, back when I wore things like this, I wore some pink leather pants to the show one night when we were covering it. I mean, hot pink. And the, my only regret now is that they were leather because I don't wear leather anymore, but I would still wear, I would still wear hot pink pants. But um, Manton was giving me a little shit about that. And, it, and we were like shooting B-roll of him, the band taking the stage that night and he, he runs over to me. They're, they're heading toward the stage and he, he sees me and he runs over to me, grabs me and spins me around and goes, this is, this is, footage exists somewhere to this day. Spins me around and goes, John Norris, you're driving me crazy in your hot pink pants. And, um, and I was like, you know, I, I think is is he in the moment dressed in like the white alien gear with like the yeah, plastic breasts? Something, yeah, <laughs> something like that. Exactly. You know. Yeah. Like, that, just to remind people what Marilyn Manson was like <laughs> at this particular moment in time. But I mean, you know, look, I don't know. Maybe another another um, another correspondent might have like been subjected to that and been like, oh, I feel so. I feel that's homophobic and I, I, I'm, I'm embarrassed. And I felt that was like, you know, cru- abusive. I don't know. Maybe it was just my mindset, but I, I'm every, for me, context is everything. And like, so to me, I wasn't put off by that at all. I thought I was, I thought it was hilarious. And, um, and 
I, I, so anyway, I have nothing bad. I've no, my interactions with him. I really have nothing bad to say about it. You know, I, on, there were a few things uh, politically that we would disagree on. Um, you know, I think he's, if I venture to guess, he's probably more of a libertarian than I am. Um, and I don't know if he's ever been on Bill Maher, but he should because they. I, oh, I feel like he must have yeah, been. Right? I feel like he must have been, especially back in that era. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Because uh, they seem like simpatico, you know. Um, but, um, uh, so yeah. I mean, and then he broke his ankle like the next night, and so they had to cancel like a bunch of shows. And th- then our final interview with him was at his home in LA like four days later with his ankle propped up on a, on a cushion. Cause he couldn't, he couldn't do the show. And, um, so, uh, I don't know. I, you know, but look, is it conceivable that he was a shitty, you know, abuse, abusive person to, to the women, some of the women he was with? I, of course it's conceivable. I, I mean, but then I, I don't, I don't presume to know, the, even the, there's, there's, you were not leaping to assumptions. No, no way. Time. And I'm like, I, I mean, there's probably a lot of people who, whose public image is a lot less aggro than Manson's who have done some pretty awful things behind closed doors, you know, um, people not in, not in hip hop, not in hard rock or metal or, or industrial or, you know what I mean? I, I, I don't, I don't think it's always the people who are the most visibly um, outrageous that are the ones that are, that have dark sides to them. So um, this kind of uh, getting to the, I guess the bigger picture of what we were just kind of getting on with Manson and six nine for other things is we didn't even talk about uh, kind of what you're saying before with like do you think that it's actually possible to kind of have these people like canceled or removed from the canon or I, I just I feel like in a lot of these cases it's it's very difficult like the reputation could take a big hit but when you're dealing with someone like michael jackson for example like you can't really pull him out of the history of pop culture it's like pulling out like the part of the jenga tower that makes the whole thing fall no i was in i was i was in the laundromat the other day and i heard him on cbs fm so i mean he's not it's not like michael's records have been pulled from radio or i don't um i guess it's sort of case by case i think that Let's see. In the case of Manson, I think that he, well, he will, he will almost certainly be subject to some sort of radio boycott or he's already, I think he's been dropped by management and label, hasn't he? Since this. Yeah. Okay. Well, the thing with the, the label dropped him, but he wasn't technically signed to it. It was a uh, Loma Vista, oh, which right. is part of, uh, right. So they, they were just licensing his records. Yeah. I mean, in terms of fan base, I don't, I think that, I suspect that a lot of Manson's fans either either don't believe it and they'll say things like, well, Rose said she wasn't treated that way. And Dino, did Dina Von Teese come out and say that she was or was not? I don't recall. But I mean, I, th- I think what you can kind of infer from all of this is that 
it seemed like his behavior became much worse around the time he became much less famous. Well, and I'm not sure if there's a causality there, but that that's kind of like what the arc is like, you know, what Dita and, and Rose McGowan would be with him. Like when he's like at his most famous, you know, it's funny. I, there, I think there's a causality, not only there, I think that there is probably a causality among a, a, a centuries long history of artists who are at their most abusive when they are at their most um, frustrated with something in their life or career. And I, you know, not, and this is again, not making excuses for anyone. For, yeah. But it psychologically makes sense. Sure. Sure. I mean, you know, the part of the, you'll remember part of the, the, the six, nine documentary um, where your heart just goes out to Sarah, you know, Sarah Molina, his, his first girlfriend, the mother of his child. I mean, who just, I've never met her either, but she seems like the sweetest and just stood by him and loved him. And, and, but you know, he got it in his head that she'd been sleeping with uh shoddy, who is his de facto manager. And um, this is also when he, he felt the feds were closing in because, you know, they had raided his house. He was over in Dubai. This is in late, like just a couple months before he got locked up. Uh, he was over in Dubai and the feds raided his place and they found, you know, guns and stuff, which he said were shoddies and set up. In any case, he's, he was no dummy. And he knew that things were, a net was closing and oh shit time was about to happen. So what does he do? He calls Sarah, has her, flies her over to Dubai and promptly beats the shit out of this girl in a, in a hotel room. And it's just, it's, 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 it's sickening and it's, heartbreaking to see her recalling that and but you know it's at least partly again it sounds like i'm making excuses for him but these guys who think they're on top of the world and then when things go south well what do they do they take it out on the person closest to them yeah i mean i don't even see that as an excuse thing i find it like it makes it worse to me that it's the, that their narcissism and attachment right. to fame like ends up resulting in damaging other people. Yeah. I can do anything kind of thing. Yeah. To, to me, it intensifies the problem rather than uh, forgives it. Yeah. I, 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 I mean, yeah, exactly. I, exactly. about i was i was in i was in um one of the reasons that they talked to me when michael passed uh was that i was one of the few people at mtv who actually went to neverland and back in 93 or god i can never remember years matthew it was 93 early 90s let's say it was six months before he did the famous video statement from Neverland where he talks about, talked about the sheriff's department coming to his 
to to the to the ranch and photographing his genitals and making him feel you know humiliated and all that and this was in the wake of the his first accuser um you know what was your vibe of being there like like what do you remember of it now well it was like being in a theme park you know in a in a very um the whole vibe of the place was it was was sort of calculated uh, sort of a sort of a calculated celebration of being a child. The whole layout of the place, from the zoo to the little train went that went around the, the perimeter of the of the ranch, to the um, the main house and the guest house, which were like they had the vibe of like being in you know uh, part of of Disneyland or something, and. Uh, we didn't go to the zoo portion, but we were at the amusement park, which is where we did like this little stand-up interview with with Michael. And um, he showed up. When he showed up, he had some little kids with him. I mean, little. We're talking five-year-old kids with him on the train, like in his lap, and like two of them, two or three of them. And we we didn't have our shot quite ready yet because lighting lighting was a big thing for Michael, and so we we had to have lighting director there and everything getting set. So he would since we weren't ready to roll yet, he went off and rode some rides with these kids and and but you know people ask me about it about the the weirdness or inappropriateness of it, um, and I think that all I can say about that is back then I think that a lot of us saw him as this really just strange arrested childhood figure that um, was around kids because he kind of was one. And I, you know, that sounds. Or, or, or at least was like trying to build the childhood that yeah, he wasn't really exactly. allowed to have. You know, I mean, everything yeah. so much about from, I mean, where to begin, right? Where to begin? I mean, he's such a, it's, I mean, the tragedy and glory of his life is just like, it's it's like, it's like, he's like a literally a legend figure. Yeah. I mean, and it's, it's a, it's almost like a, it's, it's almost like Greek tragedy level, like what happened with him. And, 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 and like, I, I think, I guess the easy thing for a, for a rank outsider who doesn't know my inclination was always to lay what became of Michael at the feet of Joe Jackson, because I think that dads are more often than not play a big part in, in something like that. But, you know, fast forward more than 10 years later, and I was, I was encamped outside the, the courthouse in Santa Maria, California, waiting the verdict in the, in the second, in his, the big trial. And, um, you know, dude, like being around the hardcore Michael Jackson fans, it's like, if you think MAGA's a cult, I mean, it, these, these, these people are as dedicated to Michael and, and I'm, and I'm not, I'm not faulting them because there's a lot that Michael represented to a lot of people that was very, very meaningful and positive, but um, I don't know if you remember all the footage from seeing it when the verdict was announced. There was a woman who released a cage full of doves. Uh, yes. I, I, I mean, 
And you, you were there for the oh, dub. Yeah, I, we were like in the press compound, which was extensive, you know, like, but you know, you're there alongside every, every sleazy tabloid TV show. And, uh, and you feel kind of dirty about covering it, but then you feel it's important. And I was even there for his like arraignment a couple weeks earlier when, or no, maybe it was, maybe it was a good deal earlier. I think they flew me out for that. I don't remember now, but it was when he stood on top of the SUV, remember, and waved to the fans under his umbrella and mm. stuff. It was just, God, God, everything about it. And then I'd love to meet Paris sometime. Cause she seems like a cool, a cool woman. And um, I don't know. I, I don't know. You know, I guess that's where you could kind of put your, like uh, the judgment of fathers on her. Yeah. I guess. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, you know, I think because I lived through a lot of this time was around was around a lot of these people. I um, people ask me about, you know, why didn't why didn't you guys do more or say more or, and it's because you didn't know you didn't know anything conclusive, you know. I had when fine when leaving Neverland aired, I had Michael Jackson fans like hitting me up on um, Twitter asking me if when I was there in, in 93 or four, whichever year that was um, it, whether or not the train station was in existence at Neverland, because part of the case against him in never in leaving Neverland was that one of the, one of the young men, it was James or Wade who brought, you know, brought the charges against Michael in the show, in the dock claimed that the abuse, some of the abuse happened in the trains above the train station. And I was like, yes, as I recall, the train station did exist. And I, I'm like, but like, I don't know what point you want me to, but I do not want to. <laughs> like it, like your expert witness would exonerate him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I don't know. Like it's, it's, when you spoke to him and the times you spoke to him, like, did he come across as like a person to you or was he just so on script that it was kind of hard to say? Well, only one time did I speak to him on camera and um, I was around him on camera a couple other times for B-roll and stuff, but it was not an interview. And this barely qualified as an interview because it was just like three questions and part of a, a contest where we asked three civilians to make a treatment for Michael's next video. And then he chose the winner. But I, anyway, that was at Neverland. And, and my inner, to answer your question off camera, he was, it was like a, a normal conversation. We were talking about uh, Janet had an upcoming record. We were talking about that. And uh, we're talking about the ranch and like, you know, how cool it was. And then, and he was telling me about some new rides that they were going to, they're planning to put in. And, um, he asked me what else I'd been working on. And I, it was just like a, I don't know. It was just like normal sort of banter pre-interview banter you would have with anyone. And the minute the cameras rolled and the minute the lights went on, he was literally monosyllabic. He would give me yes, no, I don't know, kind of answer. It was like a deer in headlights. It was very weird. And, um, I know that other people, um, Oprah and uh, um, God, I'm forgetting his name now. Um, famous used to be on MSNBC. Um, uh, 
British mm-hmm. British guy inter- famously interviewed Piers Morgan. Um, no, no, no. no. Um, not not as shitty as Piers Morgan. Uh, <laughs> like uh, uh, what's his uh, God? Oh, I'm good. This is one of those things where once once the name comes. Yeah, yeah, out, yeah, oh, yeah. So. Um, anyway, anyway. <laughs> good interview, long interview. That and he went with him to Vegas and stuff and. Um, uh, I remember that there was there was it was a documentary yeah, that came yeah, out that was kind of built around right. that footage. And I'm, why am I not remembering the guy's name? Anyway, that so there were people that got big sit down interviews with him, but I don't think I don't you know I don't know that anyone ever got to the heart of heart of, and no one ever will I don't think. But look, I don't I don't I have no reason not to believe Wade Robson and James Safechuck's stories in that documentary. Um, you know, man, it takes a lot to, it's like, it takes a lot to go on camera and, and tell, tell those stories. The, and the, the, the hardcore Michael fans who say that it's all invented and I don't know, it's, I don't know what to make of it. I'm not, I'm, you're not. The, those, those hardcore Michael fans really were kind of pioneers of what we now would know as fans. No, every everyone has their own version of that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are one hundred percent. As does Trump, by the way. You know, the famous. Oh, of someone. course. I, I guess, like most any famous person or like suitably famous person, has some yeah. version of that. I mean, you go on Instagram on Takashi's Instagram, and as many people who are like just talk, you know, telling him he's trash, telling him he's a a rat telling him he's like, you know, his days are numbered. And there's a lot of that too. I love the way in neither Instagram or Twitter seem to police threats against Takashi, which I thought were against terms of service. But anyway, my point is that you'll see a lot of comments that are like, he's still so cool. He's still the King. He's still, you know, they, they love, they love him in a way that MAGA fans love Trump because he's, they feel like he's owning someone, you know, just by getting a reaction. Um, but I think, you know, there's plenty of stands of artists that don't have notorious reputations that believe that that artist can do no wrong. You know, I'm not, I'm not, yeah. I'm not so sure. I, I can never really relate to it. You know, like I, I don't, I don't think there, I can't think of anyone who I would like want to stick my neck out for, especially if I have, I've never met them. Yeah. I don't know what it says about me, Matthew, but like I, I used to, here's another person that people have over the years, really, I think a lot of people have kind of revised their view of, and that's Ariel Pink. And Ariel is somebody who I also had, just like reliably such entertaining interviews with, you know, I mean, the guy is like, not unlike Manson. See, here we go. Another personality, not unlike Manson, who is, look, the word that a lot of people are going to use reflexively in 2021 is toxic. They're going to say, John, you've just spent an entire episode of Flugspod talking about one toxic asshole after another. And I'm telling you that they wouldn't, if they were purely toxic and there was nothing charming about them, there was nothing charismatic about them, we wouldn't be talking about them because they would never have had careers to begin with, right? I mean, so clearly they have appeal to people. But I used to love talking to Ariel. And, you know, 
he would throw the mildly homophobic comment my way. And I'd be like, whatever, I don't care. I mean, but I'm, I don't know what that says about me or, but you know what? The, I, this sounds sad. The, people are going to listen to me. They're going to be like, they're going to be like, you didn't cancel him before this. What, when I can't, like you had, you had the evidence, John. He was, he was showing up at the MAGA, the, 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 um, you know, stop the steel rally at the ellipse right before they siege the, the late siege to the Capitol. Him and John Mouse, and especially John Mouse. I was like, really? I didn't. That, yeah, that one. I, 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 I've never really known a lot about him, but that one felt a little bit more left field. Yeah, right. And then like, so, but honestly, at that point, I was like, I, I already knew. I, I already knew that Ariel was kind of a Trump supporter because I'd seen some shit he'd written in the past. But, but to. Yeah, it wasn't necessarily a secret. I think it was a matter of people not paying attention to Ariel Pink for a while. Right, right, right. Yeah, exactly. I, I just, that I was disgusted by. And and then I got to say, <laughs> with all the shit he's done and all the shit he's, the trolling shit he said, when Takashi on this supervillain documentary said, right, straight up said, yo, Trump is a good ass president. People don't get it. He just says what's on his. He just says what's on his mind. He doesn't edit himself. And I like people like that. I'm like, why, dude? Why have I spent all this time saying that you're not such a bad guy over the last five years, and you're sitting here fucking endorsing Trump? Are you kidding me? But whatever. Wait. So I, I, one more question before we wrap yeah. it up. Just like, do you? Just when you look at your history with uh, like being a fan of music, of all this stuff, I'm sorry. With me liking toxic people, you mean? Well, not, not even toxic people, but do do you feel like you you you've always been attracted to kind of provocateurs? Yes, hundred hundred percent, hundred percent. Yes, I'm I'm attracted to I well I'm I I here's the thing I'm attracted to provocateurs if I feel they're provoking in the name of something larger. And you could argue that in Takashi's case, it's nothing about anything more than himself. Look at me and how outrageous I can be. And that's a fair, I think that's a fair observation. In the case of Ariel, Manson, some of these other people, there is a, there's a, Madonna, certainly there's a, there is a, there's a larger agenda to what they're, what they've done over the years. And, and, and they were, and they were, um, they were uh, balloons that needed to be pricked. I would say that a lot of what they did, and I and it was it's a it's a good thing and a healthy thing. And I think there's not enough people doing that now. I mean, there's plenty of, I mean, the punk energy I see in music, in mainstream music now, is all in young Gen Z hip hop. But so much of that is just like suck my dick and and like and like. Look at my look at my, you know. It, it is interesting how a lot of those kids process what rock music is. Yeah, I mean, so many. It's it, it's fascinating. Like I don't have even have a judgment on it. Of any, it's just like uh, it's just like ha- having listened to rock music my whole life, and also rap music for the vast majority of my life. It's just like seeing like how the other thing looks from a completely different perspective. Um, I think that the focus on rock stardom is is so fascinating because there hasn't really been a lot of like real rock stars in uh, quite a while, and you know I, I was thinking recently like oh the, you can kind of like go, go back to one specific person that all of this archetype is 
it's and it's all Axl Rose. Mm, yeah. Like all the things that that's that's associated with Rockstar from the rap perspective is basically just Axel. I think that I think that the I think the Axel comparison is valid when it comes to the real, you know, thrashy sort of punkier. Um, uh, Cobain, influence. sure. But also, also Cobain. That's exactly what I was going to say. You know, Cobain. That's the darker that's the one vibe that you get here cited by. Everyone from Denzel Curry to Juice World to XXX to it, it, they're, they're going for like a depressive, dangerous vibe, and that is just a, a very powerful thing that is not that common. Yeah. Even even when people go for it, it's it's a hard thing to fake. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, if it it and it also like I don't know you once once depression. Once angst can come from a lot of places and, um, you know, there's a, there's definitely a fetishization of Kurt that, that I think comes in waves, but the, a lot of the young, the young Gen Z hip hop dudes definitely fetishize him. I mean, to the point where, you know, um, Denzel Curry a few years ago, uh, on his taboo record, had a song and video called Clout Cobain. And yeah, it's a great yeah, song. yeah. You so you, yeah, and you remember the video where he's like in a striped, he's wearing like a striped shirt, just like Kurt famously wore the uh he wore like it's like a I guess sort of like you'd compare it to like a I don't know, like a gondolier, a Venetian gondolier type striped shirt. But um that, the one time I met Kurt, I never interviewed Kurt Cobain, but I didn't meet him uh, at the VMAs backstage once with Francis was just a infant and she was in his arms. And the only reason I met him is because Courtney saw me and she like yelled across the field at me to, we were in the trailer compound and I was like, I was just so, that was pretty, I was pretty green at the time. And I was just like, I just, I just couldn't believe that I was meeting him. And we barely exchanged three words, but um, uh, anyway, I'm rambling. So I, I, yeah, I'm sorry. About that. Well, I I get the feeling just just through the sheer breadth of your experience, it's just like I think I was kind of saying before, like at the top when we were kind of like, you could probably enter any conversation, no matter how boring it could be, and entertain someone with an anecdote along yeah. those lines. I mean, you know, like I was saying at the top, you know, I people um always want to drag me into talking about the past and like you know. I don't, I don't mind it under these, like, like this situation. I don't mind it at all. I especially don't mind it when we can kind of like make, weave it into like what's going on now, nowadays, you know, I, but you know, I don't. Well, I mean, you know, you ever watch it in Sopranos? There's that line where it's like, remember when is the lowest form of conversation. Yeah. 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 I think it's kind of what you're getting at. Exactly. And when people, there will be like, I'll, I'll be at a show sometime. Sometimes in, in an older person will come up to me and go, don't know who I am. And they'll be like, this is good. Right. But it's just, I mean, music's just not what it used to be. Right. And I'm like, God, I hate comments like that. God, I hate comments like that. Cause I'm, I'm like, if you don't, if you can't find so, something worthwhile and exciting and interesting and new and in music now, you're not really looking. And I, and I know for a fact yeah. people like that aren't looking. Um, 
Yeah, I, I I agree with that. And it's like, well, the the statement is correct that things are not the same as yeah, it used to be, but things never, I mean, look, that's not how anything works. So, but I, I, I think what you're saying, I think about this when I make like those uh, survey things I do, that it's like, if you can't find something in this, here is literally like uh, a few hundred songs from like the most recent year. If you can't find anything in this to like, then I don't know what to tell you. It's like, exactly. You know, that, that's on I you. I my friends who work at Sirius XM. I'm like, I, one of my rants to them has been, why do 90% of your channels, are they just filled with like oldies? It's 80, the 80s on eight or the 90s on nine or lithium or this channel. As you've literally got, they've got maybe five channels, maybe, and I'm being generous, that that actually are driven by current music. And, and, uh, and the answer, I think the real answer is because our audience is all driving the kids to soccer practice in their, in their Range Rovers and they want to, they don't want to hear current music, you know? Right. Or, or they just want something that just feels comfortable in the background. And I mean, that's understandable. I mean, a lot of times, like I think for a lot of people, music is a purely functional thing. Yeah. It's a utilitarian experience. It just—it's what's strange to me is why people stop evolving in, with music. Where the, the, you know people don't stop watching new movies. But you know, I actually I I have a kind of a theory on that. I think it's kind of it kind of ties into something you're kind of alluding to before. But there is this ageism in culture, especially around music, where but it's it's built to the cult of youth makes it necessary for people who are age out of youth to be considered useless or they have to like make a case for their relevance. You don't have to tell me that. And, you know? But you know, yeah, but you yeah. know what I'm saying? But I, I think that when the culture at large is telling you that you are not with it anymore, if you don't have, if you as a person who is in middle age, don't have the exact same taste as someone who is 13 years old, then you're out of step. And it's like, I, I mean, I feel like that's an extremely toxic thing. I, I, and I think like having that kind of fetishization of youth is really gross. Well, when you, yeah. yeah. Even when you take out the, like, you know, making old people feel bad. Well, yeah. I mean, that's what, I mean, to, when you're somebody, when you're somebody who's middle-aged who has an interest in music being made by 18 and 20 year olds, there's a lot of people who think that's just weird, you know, and, and like, and or it's desperate or it's me being Peter Pan. I, you know what? Guilty as charged. I don't care. Whatever. Say what you want about me, but know that I am as I am as capable and knowledgeable of writing about those artists as you're and fully sincere and sincerely. Yes, exactly. And but I, you know, I'll just leave it this because uh, we could go. I I know we've gone over it. Yeah, this this feels like a good this feels like a good place. But to I could wrap. I could I could just I can't tell you the number of editors over the last. 12 years since I left MTV who have said, who have basically told me, well, I really only want to work with you if you're willing to sort of like assume a elder statesman kind of role and write about things, uh, either, either retro things or things with, they're not interested in me doing a straight up profile on a young new artist. They're just not, I mean, don't get me wrong. I do that right now. And people do, there are editors who let me do that, but there's plenty of others who, man, man, it's like they've decided what my brand is 
And maybe my maybe my real downfall is that I insist on telling you what my brand is. And it's all over the place, man. It's all over the place. And I don't I'm 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 not living in the lap of luxury, that's for sure, for, for being so stubborn. John, John, how can people find you now? And like, and some other, th- and if you want to like mention a few things they should look up that you've yeah, done recently, like you're proud they of. Can, well, they can always find me ranting about one thing or another on Twitter, and I definitely don't stay on brand. That's my other, that's my other thing. But um, I'm always ranting about everything from football to politics to, to music and culture um, on Twitter at Johnny Nono is my, uh, is my handle. And, um, and uh, as far as writing, my most recent piece was on the UK band Shame, who I love a lot, and their new record called Drunk Tank Pink is so good. Uh, that was on GQ. Um, I'm going to be writing soon more uh, for the Grammys, and um, I did in the last year maybe four pieces for Billboard. I covered the actor slash musician Caleb Landry-Jones. I did the young rapper The Kid Leroy. Talked to one of the breakout stars of the last two years, 24K Golden. That was for, that was, for, who was that for? That was for the Grammys, I think. I did, I uh, twice talked to Curtis Waters, who I love and just an amazing kid. Uh, for V-Man, I did that. Uh, John, thank you so much for coming on. Of course, man. It's, it's great to talk to you and um, best of luck with everything and uh, hope to do it again sometime. Oh, yeah.